you know, we grew by 60% that year in gross revenue. So it was definitely a good move for us. But the key to that, like I said, is communication and, and following through with your customers so you don't lose that loyalty and that trust. Hello and welcome to this episode of Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm your host, Felix Tia. Have you ever gone camping and really missed the luxury of a shower? Well, that's exactly what the folks at RinseKit have tapped into. They created a portable pressurized fit for the great outdoors. Today, we're joined by RinseKit's Director of Operations, Haley Martinez. And she's here to walk you through how the business transitioned from physical retail to e-commerce and how that's affected her strategy at RinseKit. Haley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Felix. I'm excited to chat with you. So a portable pressurized shower, can you describe to the audience what it looks like and how it works? Yeah, so it essentially looks like a, a pail or a bucket right now that you uh, pour water into and you press the power button and then it sprays uh, for six to eight minutes. And it's essentially like having a hose to go. Like you were taking your water spigot and your water hose that you have at your house and we're putting it in a self-contained unit that you can take anywhere, anytime. It's zero setup. You're just adding water. That's it. And the batteries on our products uh, last about six months of regular use before you even have to recharge it. So it's something that you can keep in your tool belt, keep in your car. Uh, It's something that you'll end up using every day, not just for camping, right? Not just for gear. It's like, how many times do you just get messy in life? Like life is messy. And if you're doing it right, it's even messier, right? So you might want to wash your hands or your gear, your tools, your kids, your pets. Um, Rinse Kit's there for you. It's going to give you the same water pressure as your house, but in a convenient, easy to carry container. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how the story of Rinse Kit, how did it get started? Yeah. So our founder, Chris Crawford, he was an avid surfer and he actually owned a pool company and he would go and surf in the morning and on his lunch break. And if he could get one more in before he went home, he would. So He was just surfing a lot and wanted a way to um, clean off in between so he could go back to work refresh and not be salty and sandy. So it was originally made as a surf shower and he would get pieces from like PVC pipe and and, uh, boxes from Walmart and kind of jerry-rig something together to start off with. And then he started getting a lot of people asking him about it and he would make it for people and sell it at street fairs. Uh, kind of start a little manufacturing in his garage, building things from scratch. And then um, he got some investment and that allowed us to go into mass production. And then at that point, the idea was just full retail. So they hired a full um, rep sales force and went really heavy into retail for the first three years of the business. And then um, it's kind of just grown since then. But it did start as a surf shower. And now, like you said, it is for camping and gear cleaning. We even work with commercial applications. We work with like Coast Guard, military, construction sites, just anywhere you'd really need portable pressurized water. Um, we're a great solution for that. That's amazing. So what's your career been? When did you get into joining Rinskin and what were you doing before that? Yeah, so I started with Rinskin in 2017. I was actually working at a nonprofit at the time and there was a little bit of a lull to my schedule before we got into planning these really large scale events. And so Rinskin at that time had just launched a Kickstarter campaign and they were in need of some extra help. And I was used to working like seven days a week. So I'm like, hey, 
I'll jump in, I'll help you, and then I'll go and do my normal job. And I spent the summer with them. And at the end of the summer, they were like, hey, please come on full time and handle our operations. So I actually worked two jobs for a while so that I could make that transition and then made the transition fully about mid-year in 2017. And I've been with them ever since. Got it. So you started off helping them with the Kickstarter campaign that eventually transitioned to the director of operations. What are the responsibilities of someone that is the director of operations? Yeah, you know, I think it can vary for every company. But for us, uh, essentially what I do is I go and I meet with the CEO, I meet with the founder, and I try to understand their goals. Where do they want to be in gross revenue? What new markets do they want to be in? What would make all their dreams come true, you know, in a perfect business world? And then it's my job to strategize how are we going to do that? What people are involved? What systems are involved? And how do we do that in an efficient way, in a profitable way? And then as those campaigns and those goals are being launched, um, I monitor every department, all of our teams, to make sure we're kind of hitting those critical marks, that there's cohesion between the teams, and that we're constantly becoming more efficient, more profitable, and more importantly, that our customers are getting better and better experiences from us and better, higher quality products. So I do get to be involved in every single aspect, which is really fun. Um, At my last job, I did not get to be as involved in every department. So I think it gives you a really unique perspective when strategizing, when you have a really good understanding of what everybody is doing at a given time. And I actually have worked in almost every department. So like when we first started, they needed me to jump in the back and ship things. Okay, sure. Like I can make that happen. I can do the marketing side, the ad side, whatever. So it gave me a really unique position to be able to speak to each of our team members, knowing what their day-to-day life and job responsibilities actually look and feel like. Yeah. Can you speak to some of those early goals? Once you joined Rinskit in 2017, you came in, what were some of the discussions that you had with the CEOs or the founder and decided what to be working on? Yeah. I mean, at the time with retail being such a focus, retail is so different than e-commerce. A lot of it was with kind of trying to control the brand um, when it's, not something that you can directly go into the store and control. So you're working with reps and and packaging and stores and tr- how you train people so that you're able to get your consistent brand message out to retailers. So there were issues with map pricing because they didn't have a map policy in place, didn't have map software in place um, to kind of hold pricing. So there were huge issues uh, with opportunities for growth with larger retailers because they were concerned about map. So we worked through a whole map strategy. Um, and then our packaging was not great. I'm just going to own that. In hindsight, it was uh, really ineffective packaging. And so it was impacting our sell-through. And so um, helped with redesigning all of that, getting us into some larger retailers like Costco Sam's Club, that sort of thing. But it was really just a difficult thing with how do you educate your customers on a product that's really innovative and kind of new and cutting edge in a setting where you can't directly communicate with them. And really all you have to rely on is packaging and how do you do that well? So that was definitely a challenge and it definitely kind of led us into the need to transition more to e-commerce. But initially, that's kind of where we were at. Retail has its own <laughs> its own challenges for sure. Yeah, we'll talk about the transition in a bit. One thing I want to talk about is 
in the role of a director of operations, if you're wearing that hat or you have that title, it sounds like you're doing a lot of prioritizing of what should be worked on. For other entrepreneurs out there, how do you suggest they think about all these goals, how to prioritize them? Overall, with your strategy, it's like when I talk to our team, it's what's the most important thing that needs to happen? And what are the bottlenecks? So because the problem is if people are just thinking about this is my goal and they don't take the time to see the 15 things that are going to stop you from getting to that goal, then it's going to be really hard to prioritize. So it's almost like you want to start with what's going to prohibit your growth, not necessarily what's going to accelerate it right away. And so when we're starting with something new, I ask our entire team, are there any pitfalls that you can see from your vantage point that I can't see? Because if we can address those up front, then it eliminates all the need to try a million things that might not work because we already know what the pitfalls are. We're already going to address them and figure out how we can avoid them. And then all of our energy and focus can go on to ways that are actually going to accelerate growth without some of the liabilities that you would have if you didn't start there. So that's kind of how I I like to work through it with our teams. Liability first, uh, address it, and then uh, come up with a launch plan. Now, for small teams or solo entrepreneurs, when should they start thinking about hiring a director of operations? When is it the right time? I think when you get to a place where everything you do is reactive and not proactive, it's time to get somebody in operations. Because when you're starting off, there are a million things that require your attention. And if you get to a point where you're thinking, I'm constantly just reacting to issues and problems and things that are coming up, you're in a place where you're not going to be able to grow because you really have to be able to think proactively about where am I going? Why am I going there? How am I going there? And you can't even begin to think through those kind of challenges or systems or things that you need when you're answering the thousands of emails that you have in your inbox and you're trying to ship things and you're trying to worry about marketing, like you get to a place where you have to decide if I'm going to grow, I need to step out of the weeds per se and make decisions about where I want to be long-term. And that requires a little bit of a separation sometimes from those day-to-day operations. I feel like if you're finishing your day thinking, I didn't think about anything new, I didn't think about a new system. I didn't think about growth. I didn't think about a new strategy. It's time to get somebody to help you with those day-to-day kind of operational things. Now, for any listeners out there that are thinking like, that's me, I'm reacting a lot in my business, I'm not being proactive, and they are now wanting to hire a director of operations, how do you identify a good one? How do you vet a good hire for that role? Yeah, we've done a lot of different kind of hiring processes, but I think one of the number one kind of things that I would look for is someone who can critically think. Because a lot of people can plan, but plans only take you so far. And it's the 2020, if they taught us anything, right, it's that your plans only go so far. And so having someone who can consistently pivot and critically think and ask the right questions is really important. So when you're interviewing somebody, ask them, you know, what happens if if your plan goes awry? How do you approach that? Or what kind of questions would you maybe ask our team in this situation? And so when you learn if they're asking the right questions and they can pivot, it's probably going to be a good fit. But if someone is going to be more rigid and say, well, this is the plan, it's always going to be the plan, it's never going to change, that's going to be very problematic uh, long term. I'm excited to hear more about your journey right after this quick message from Shopify. Whether you're dreaming of starting your business or in the middle of scaling one, we know that building a business can be lonely at times. 
To bring fellow founders together, we've launched our merch store, Shopify Supply. From hoodies to socks, you can represent your hustle spirit. Check it out at shopify.supply. That's shopify.supply. And use the code podcast for 10% off your complete order and you'll get free shipping within North America too. Happy shopping. I'm chatting with Haley Martinez, the director of operations at RinseKit. They make portable pressurized showers for outdoor enthusiasts. We said earlier that you were involved with changing the business strategy from physical retail to almost exclusively e-commerce. What was the, the reasoning behind this change? I was looking at our financials, which that's part of the proactive, right? You should always be looking at your P&Ls, really be studying where you can grow and where your shortcomings are. And I was just looking at our profit uh, getting kind of dwindled uh, through the retail model. And it definitely works for some people. So I don't want to say no to retail, but typically when you're working with a retailer, they're trying to make their 50% net margin. They want 2% net 30 terms. They want percent allowances for freight and returns and co-ops. And at the end of the day, it's really cutting your profit, which makes it incredibly hard to invest in growth. And it does take a lot of investment to grow. You know, every point on your P&L matters. And so I was looking at it and just thinking, this is not sustainable for the direction we want to go. So it's definitely one of the things with profitability that e-commerce has a, you can control at any given time, your pricing strategy, your cost of acquisition, all of that is a lot more in line and easier to have higher profit margins when you're doing that. So that is one of the reasons. And then the other one was like we spoke about before with brand control. Let's take like a product like a shirt. If you go to a store, you see a shirt in a retail store, you're, you're like, hey, I know what that is. I know how to put it on. I, you know, I don't, there's no kind of conversation that needs to be had. But when you have a product like ours that requires education behind it, you're creating a need, you're creating a category. It's, it's a very innovative product. The story becomes really important. Now I need videos to show you. A packaging with three bullet points and some pictures isn't going to do enough justice. I need to educate you. I need to show a need. I need to offer you support. And I want to control how our customers are interacting with us as a brand. And when you're on e-com, you have a lot more control about the funnel that you're putting your buyers through versus retail when you're thinking, I'm not there to answer your questions. You're making, you could be making a ton of assumptions based off of one box um, and maybe no sales reps on the floor. So we really wanted to increase our customer experience and kind of take control of our brand and our pricing. So we made the transition to e-com in 2020. Got it. So the two things you looked at, your P&L or your profit and loss, and then recognized that you didn't have control over the customer experience. And that was the writing on the wall to make that transition. How long did it take to fully transition from mostly retail to now e-commerce? I'd say about six months to a year. We've had a lot of conversations prior to the actual change about this is the direction we want to go. And I'm a firm believer of the no surprises rule um, with everybody that we work with, with our staff. And so what I didn't want to do is all of a sudden send an email to all of our accounts and say, you know, we're not doing business anymore. We're not in retail anymore and kind of lose those relationships. That's not fair for anybody. Um, So we kind of slowly started to transition where we would say, okay, we're not going to be taking orders. We're going to be transitioning to e-commerce at this time so that everyone kind of had a smooth transition without it being this abrupt, like, sorry, bye, like deal with everything that, you know, the fallout of that, that's not fair. It's not good business practice. So it kind of took us a while to transition at the time. 
We had just in 2019, just started kind of dabbling in e-commerce, learning what it would look like to even have a good website. (laughs) Like that was all new because when you're in retail, you don't need it really. Um, So there was, it was quite a lot of transition and just getting the website set up, all the systems on the back end sets for fulfillment ads, that sort of thing. So I'd say probably six to 12 months. For anyone else out there that is going through this transition, what were some of the biggest lessons that you or the company learned and were there any surprises along the way? Um, There's always surprises. I think one of the things I tell our staff so often is uh, assumptions are a good place to start, but not a good place to end. So you might have a lot of assumptions going into something about, oh, this is going to work or um, this new software, this new technology or this new ad or whatever it is. And it's like, we have to start with an assumption But you need to set yourself up to gather data as quickly as you can to correct any assumptions that are wrong and are going to lead you astray. I think what we learned is that everybody who's an expert isn't necessarily an expert. I will say that. And I think that there are a lot of companies who take advantage of uh, people's lack of knowledge when they're wanting to start something. And so and say, oh, I'm an expert in that. I can help you. Like, I'm an expert at making websites. I'm an expert in ads. I'm an expert in all these things. And a lot of that, I think, just requires a critical thinker and somebody who's willing to learn. So we would have so many times where people would be like, oh, let me handle that for you. And they would say they're a quote-unquote expert. And then you're thinking, you're not even uh, yielding in the ways that you say you're going to yield. And the more you start to take kind of that responsibility of I'm just going to learn this and not rely on an expert, then you can ask questions to them that kind of challenge and, and let you know, are they actually somebody who can help you grow and bring something to the company that you or your team can't bring? Or are they just relying on the fact that you might not want to learn these different things? And so we have so much opportunity to learn for ourselves so many classes to take, so many community things to join and to learn. And I think it's important for every successful entrepreneur to make learning a priority all the time um, because it really helps prevent you from relying on other people who may or may not take your brand as seriously as you do. Going from retail to e-commerce, you now have a lot more access to data. What are some of the most important metrics that you monitor? I am a data nerd. I'm not going to lie. I love analytics. Um, our e-com team loves analytics. So we're constantly, constantly looking. They're more in the nitty gritty every day. They're going to look through things like click-through rate, engagement, cost per click, that sort of thing, watch time on specific ads. From my perspective, what I care most about as the kind of guiding forces are return on ad spend and conversion rates. Because I think those are really good indications of the health between your ads and your actual e-commerce platform. The other things can maybe speak to the success or one uh, compared to the other. But when you really look at that, it's how well am I priming my customers and my ads and how well is my site doing at converting those and using what's already been primed and developing on it. So we look at those. I meet with our e-com team every week and we go through all the return on ad spend and the conversion rates and see how they're fluctuating across different platforms. But I mean, there's so much data at our fingertips now um, and Shopify does a fantastic job of really showing you where you stand at any given time. So it's, it's nice to be able to have all of that information at your fingertips because when you make a change, you can immediately see the repercussions 
in your data. And that, and that's kind of fun. Yeah. A lot of Shopify reports will give you this data. Are there any other tools or apps that you do rely on to organize and make sense of the data? Yeah. So we use Lucky Orange, um, which is kind of like Hotjar. It's like heat mapping. And that puts perspective on analytics that we're seeing. So it basically allows us to see heat mapping, like things like scroll through rate, uh, where people are clicking, what order that they're clicking in, and it gives context to the data. Um, Because it's like, we could have a great click through rate and then we're like, why are people bouncing? What about this page isn't converting? Um, And maybe that means your call to action is too low on the page and you realize, wow, only 10% of people are getting to this call to action. So it's not necessarily that no one wants our product. It's that we're not putting this high enough up. Or we might have a new graphic or a new offering that we think is enticing and nobody clicks on it. And so then it it gives us context to data that we're seeing um, and we can understand what our customers are experiencing. If there's a disconnect between our ads and our landing pages, if our product pages maybe aren't as helpful as we would anticipate. So I would say heat mapping, if, you, if you're not doing it, definitely start. Uh, it's incredibly eye-opening and it kind of eliminates any false assumptions about what you see in data in a really practical way. I'm chatting with Haley Martinez, the Director of Operations at RinseKit. They make portable pressurized showers for outdoor enthusiasts. You said that you had to learn what makes a good website during this transition. And you talked about creating educational stories and videos. Tell us more about what are some of the things that you had to create and that you learn about what makes a great website. I watched a lot of videos on YouTube, not going to lie, right? Trying to learn. But what I lean towards and learning what worked for a website is doing my homework about uh, what other companies were doing. So rather than just being like a consumer who's like, I'm just going to go to this website, see something I want me to purchase it. I looked at thousands of websites from big companies to small companies, consumer goods, and tried to find patterns in what they're seeing. What does the homepage look like? What offerings are they giving? Um, What communication is out there? How many product pages are? How are they nesting their collections? Because everybody does things so uniquely, and there's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach And I think a lot of times in website stuff, they'll say, oh, you need to have this or your website's not going to be successful. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a lot of other things that play into it, like what you're offering, who your audience is, um, where you're finding your audience. So I think it's important to do your homework, look at a lot of different websites in a lot of different industries, maybe see if there's some crossover um, for for you and other companies and then and then a b test it try different landing pages with different things that work so all of our ads right now everything goes to very specific landing pages and we a b test those what creative works for us sometimes people will say that still images work better video works better for us we know that it's proven in our data so our product is so visual we had to invest in really great video um, but other products might not have that. The, the video might be distracting. And so I think it's important to just be a learner of every day what works for you as a consumer, ask your friends, and then consistently go back and check in on what that assumption was. So definitely do your homework and don't be afraid to try new things. Yeah, it's like doing your homework to understand what you can do, but then do the testing yourself. And one of the tools that you use, you mentioned earlier, was uh, Lucky Orange to do the heat maps. Can you tell us about some of the steps or things you implemented because of what you learned about how users use your site? We always assumed 
<laughs> that people were big readers. All of our staff are big learners. We're always reading, we're always learning. And so we had put a lot of emphasis on our descriptions. Like, let's make sure the bullet points are concise and clear. Let's make sure there's lots of descriptions. And then we were watching people's sessions and trying to see where they were scrolling to. And there was something like 90% of people don't read anything on the website at all. They rely 100% on photo and video. And we see it in their interactions. We see it in the time they spend on different pages that are more visual or more have more copy on it. Um, and we were just noticing that our customers were converting substantially more when images and video were made the priority over copy. And I think knowing your audience goes into that, our audience is predominantly men who, you know, market studies show are more visual. So I wouldn't want that to be like a focus for everybody. You have to know your audience. Women tend to read more. So copy might be more important to them if that's your business model. So I think you have to know your audience. But that's where Lucky Orange came into play for us because we thought we were doing a great job with our product descriptions and then realized it didn't really matter. What we need to be doing is focusing on, on new assets and videos. Back order management was something that has doubled your revenue. Tell us more about what is back order management and how has it helped your business? Back ordering is basically allowing somebody to purchase on your site when you can't ship or fulfill right away. So in 2020, which is when we started our kind of e-commerce strategy, um, obviously everyone experienced inventory issues. Uh, we, I think, sold out a product five times. And I know some businesses made the decision to kind of go into hibernation mode, um, where it's like, let's kind of wait this out and see when we have products, we'll kind of put it, turn it back on. I didn't want to lose momentum. I thought this was a good time. People were going outside. They had more, more time to, to be outdoors and to enjoy the outdoors. And the inventory issues were across the board. So we weren't doing anything wrong as a company. So I thought, you know, let's just continue the growth. Let's not assume that we're not going to grow because we don't have stock. And so what we would allow people to do would be to order on our website, knowing what the ship date would be, um, which is essentially what Amazon does when you want to buy something and they say, hey, it's going to ship in three weeks. Then on the back end of that, we use ShipStation and we would create batches by order date so that there was definitely a hierarchy of if you ordered earlier, we were going to make sure that you got your unit first. Um, and we tried to be very diligent about communication. If you're going to do back ordering, you need to communicate with your customer. There is nothing worse from a customer perspective of putting money into something and then not knowing when you're going to get it. And then if a dates are missed, having that not be communicated to you. So when we did it, we had um, dates on the actual product pages. They received uh, dates in the emails that they would go post-purchase. Here's when it's going to ship. If it changes, here's when you should expect to be notified. And then we even had a live web page by order number that would tell you when your order was going to ship. And we would update that every day. Because we really wanted our customers to have confidence that we're not just taking your money. We're, we're really prepping this. And so we would laugh that when we got we'd get a container or two in at a time, we would fulfill thousands of orders in two days. The warehouse would be completely full and then completely empty and we'd start the cycle again. But because we were willing to, you know, take the orders and not stop our momentum, you know, we grew by 60% that year in gross revenue. So it was definitely a good move for us. But the key to that, like I said, is communication and, and following through with your customers so you don't lose that loyalty and that trust. 
Something really cool that your team has done is to partner with a nonprofit called Dig Deep to provide clean water to nearly 2.2 million Americans. Tell us more about that, that program. Early on, we had talked with our team about being a company that gives back um, and is not just for profit, especially coming from a nonprofit uh background. Um, I think businesses have a really unique position and opportunity to support nonprofits, um, especially ones that line with their brand. So Dig Deep is all about providing clean water to Americans that don't have access. Um, and I think that can sometimes be a little bit of a hard understanding for a lot of us who are really privileged to have running water. It's such a part of our life that we don't really even think about it. And it's not something that everybody has. And so what Dig Deep does is they partner with communities like the Navajo Nation to provide water for them. And they actually put install these water tanks. They install all the plumbing so that houses can get water. Um, and, and then they train the community to keep those resources kind of going so that it's sustainable. And we felt like with our company, we're all about water, um, that, you know, we need to be serious about water conservation and about equal access to water. So we decided to partner with them. You can support Dig Deep on our website. You can donate any dollar amount and it goes directly to them. Um, and 100% of the funds go to the water project. So you don't have to worry about um, any of that money being poorly managed or poorly allocated. So we're excited to partner with them. We really think it's important and it, it kind of brings... It brings an opportunity to people to serve that they maybe didn't know was an issue. That sounds like a perfect fit, which is hard to find when you want to add a nonprofit, a charitable arm to your business. So that that's awesome. What's the future like for RinseKit? We are really excited. The next year, uh, we are going to be launching five new products um, that are in completely for new audiences, uh, new markets, uh, and that are really, really high tech. Before, with our original models, they were not battery pressured, so it was kind of lower technology, um, but we're getting to uh, a place where we're really, really leveling up. Uh, it's going to be very high tech. I wish I could speak into exactly what it's going to be. I, you know, I'm not allowed to at this time, but over the next year, you should expect to see five or six uh, completely new state-of-the-art products. There's nothing like them on the market. So we're, we're very excited to be launching those. Thank you so much for joining me today. Haley Martinez, Director of Operations at RinseKit. They make portable, pressurized showers for outdoor enthusiasts. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that's all the time we have this week. Come hang out with us next time on Shopify Masters. Again, I'm Felix Tiv. Take care.